here with Mandy Fridger, professional counselor, consultant, and author of the upcoming book, From Exhausted to Energized, The Autism Spectrum Disorder Caregiver's Guide. Mandy, thank you so much for being here with us tonight. Great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited um, to talk to you guys. Me too. I mean, this is yeah. such a fascinating uh, topic. Um, and the more we get into it, I just think that it'll just generate some really good conversation. Um, so to get started, you know, for people who are not familiar with your book, uh, tell us about it. What's it, what's it about? Yeah. So I have a long history in um, clinical practice, probably about 25 years now. And this book is about caregivers uh, for those diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, which I did not start out working with this population at all. It was not something that I ever intended to do, but I'm sure many of your listeners will appreciate that one thing leads to the next and you fall in line with the direction. And um, I really, when I got into working with this population, I always had more questions, always. And I, I felt like I was just that person always knocking on the door. <laughs> I have some questions and really wanting to learn everything that we, that we could about autism, especially 20, 25 years ago. And um, in my career, I worked with a lot of in-home types of service. So I worked with the families for a long time and really throughout my career, as well as with the kids or the young people who were diagnosed. And I kind of had a light bulb one day when um, I was in, I was practicing, I was the director of Cleveland Clinic's affiliate site, and it was a center-based, uh, school-based program for students diagnosed with autism spectrum disorders. And um, it also had, a, we had a diagnostic center. So I oversaw both of those programs. And if I, if I just rewind a little bit, when I first started in the field all those years ago, my primary modality was actually energy psychology. And this was unheard of back then. So, so I'll, I'll get to that in a little bit. But when I was working at the center, I really noticed that my staff who, they were just phenomenal at their jobs. I can't say anything, um, anything less than just they were excellent and they always had been when I worked there and they love their jobs they love working with the kids but I remember them um, one day just kind of feeling like you know they were sort of crashing at home after work and they knew I had um, done energy psychology practices before even though this was not a part of that program for the students per se and so I just kind of ran a little pilot study with just one little energy intervention for the staff and the staff actually made some, some pretty good gains with it. And so that's kind of when I thought, you know what, parents should be and should have access to this and caregivers because these tools, energy psychology tools are, are very fast, relatively fast acting. And this population doesn't have time for a lot of the traditional recommendations. So that's kind of the light bulb for, for the book. Yeah. So um, I want to hear, so I guess let's start off with um, energy psychology and then move more about applying it to um, caregivers um, of children who are on the autism spectrum. So tell us about energy psychology. You know, what exactly is it? And you mentioned you used an intervention. What are some of the interventions that you used? Yeah, so again, my path sort of dropped me in the lap of Dr. Greg Nicosia, who was a student of Dr. Roger Callahan's who actually founded Thoughtfield Therapy. I'm, I'm not sure if anybody out there is familiar with his work. And so I learned Thoughtfield Therapy and I learned then EMDR really early in my career. 
And so thought-filled therapy is actually meridian-based therapy. And it, it, it's kind of like tapping. A lot of people out there might have heard of EFT, okay. which um, Dr. Callahan's students said, okay, we can make this a little simpler. And then EFT evolved out of that. But back then, you know, we were talking about specific modalities and these ones that were a little bit more popular. And later we kind of came to collectively term any type of mind-body approach under the umbrella of energy psychology. So even though we were kind of using the term back then, it's really just gaining momentum now. So there's a lot of different types of interventions um, and ways to use the tools under the umbrella of energy psychology. The one that people are probably most familiar with that actually is gaining a lot of ground in clinical research is mindfulness and giving some attention to our thoughts. And then we have a lot of stuff in between. Um, What I'm trained to work with uh, specifically under a comprehensive energy psychology model is the the acupuncture system with respect to um, psychological issues, not medical issues necessarily, no needles. We just use the taps and the chakra system and the biofield. So which is, that's our energy that sort of surrounds the body. It's a little bit nebulous in the research right now, but uh, I find it fascinating and they kind of all make sense when I explain them to my clients on a practical level when they come in with different types of issues. Interestingly enough, when I started with Dr. Nicosia, his practice is in the Pittsburgh region. I'm in Pennsylvania. And his, his practice was really attracting people who sort of have exhausted the traditional medical um, system as far as pain goes or long-term injuries or um, you know, chronic illnesses and things. And so they were, you know, coming to him in, in droves to, to do some of learn some of this energy work. So I, I got to work with him there and learn these techniques and help. So my early experience really was in pain management and you know the anxiety, trauma, and depression that comes along with that. And um, you know, looking back, these were really complicated cases. And I didn't realize it at the time, but it, it gave me a wealth of experience to see how you know layers unfold for people, how the healing happens, and really how to navigate a lot of these tools. So I was really blessed in learning how to do it that way. Um, and then my career path, I, I, I changed um, jobs and I was, it was more community-based. And this is kind of a funny story. They, when I was interviewing, um, they were telling me I was going to work with, with kids and young kids who had autism. It was called autism back then. And I said, okay, I, I don't think so. Thank you. But no, thank you. I don't know anything about this. And I'm not, yeah. not qualified to do this. And I said, but do you know about energy psychology? And then, <laughs> of course said no and we're going to work with this population and we're going to use ABA and I said I, I don't know anything about that so that's kind of how I, I went from I, I think it's interesting being you know as, as long in the career tooth as I am that energy psychology was actually the first thing I learned and then I got introduced to the traditional stuff with ABA and CBT and uh, it, was, it was a little confusing actually, yeah. at first, but I, I hope, you know, the generations now energy psychology is, is going to be a household name for when they start to go to graduate school and, and can kind of learn some of these schools. It is. It does seem like it's gaining more momentum. I mean, hospitals and um, veteran affairs hospitals um, are using it for pain management, whether it's acupuncture, EFT, mindfulness. So it has seemed like it's gaining a little more mainstream acceptance, especially for issues related to pain. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, so I'm curious. So then I'm curious then too. So then it sounded like you then, did you then start working with 
children on the autism spectrum disorder or were you working with their caregivers? At yeah. So this, this first position that I just referred to, it was, it's an in-home position. So I would go to the, the kids' homes okay. and I was actually, um, I supervised the direct staff who were working directly with the interventions with the kids. So a lot of that role in my, my job role at the time was to sort of translate what the staff was doing with the kids to the parents. Okay. And so I, that's, that's really where I learned um, how many and what types, the quality of stressors that these parents were going through. And at that point, they were actually quite basic. Again, rewind 20 years ago, you know, there wasn't a, as much education. There was no internet, really. I mean, there was, but it wasn't like you could go on and find a lot of different things like you can today. So parents had a lot of basic questions just about interventions, just about the diagnosis, um, navigating systems, how to get help, which helps to get. So that was my job was to work with the parents and, you know, do, provide them with resources to do this. But in those conversations, you know, it's, it's not easy to, for the parent, of course, you know, you're in their home, which is really intrusive as it is to sort of zip up all the emotions and make it like a professional meeting all yeah. of the time. So a lot of the raw emotions came out with, with the parents too. And let me just say with this role that I had, it was called a behavior specialist consultant. Back then, we also stood as what were called mobile therapists. It was different than billing, but oftentimes I was the mobile therapist, which actually is like an outpatient therapist that would go to the home. So I did work with a lot of the families and as, as well as the kids. So I, I saw a lot of their struggles and I, I knew that they were, well, I thought at the time they were unique, but I really didn't have anything to compare it to because that was the only you know, parental population that I was actually working intensely with. But they always had questions, you know, it was, it was like, what are we doing clinically? And then again, resources, and then my personal life, how do I assimilate what I need to do with my child? How do I get people to understand this? One of the things today is, you know, with autism awareness, <clears throat> um, you know, people, it's all about disclosure. And I think a lot of parents today are very free, you know, about saying, you know, my child has autism or they're diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, however, and whenever they were diagnosed with the appropriate terminology. But back in the day, I remember we were even creating little cards, which I think is kind of a staple thing to do today, but it was really novel back then so that if the parents were in the community, um, they could, and, and their child was having, you know, they called them tantrums or meltdowns, that they could just hand this card to somebody that said, my child has has autism so that people wouldn't, you know, observe that scene and think that something, you know, unsafe was happening. I mean, clinically, there probably was something unsafe that was about to happen, but a lot of the types of behaviors that you see can be pretty intense with these kids. And that was another big stressor with the parents. It's like, what do I do when I'm in the public? And the, the child has, has this type of behavior and it can come out of nowhere. And, you know, we talk about the antecedents and all that back then, but it looks scary. And the way that the pa parents have to manage it sometimes looks like they possibly could be, you know, harming their child when they're not. It's just, you got to do the best you can. And all of you out there who have ever taken crisis management and physical, you know, training, you know, it doesn't go as neatly in the trainings. It looks messy. And so that was one of the big concerns that a lot of the families had back then about how do I manage problematic behaviors in the community without judgment or without really someone calling protective services. And even in my own family, 
And that was really disheartening to hear, but I still hear that from parents that, you know, extended support systems um, in the family is, it's, it's just not um, always there. And there's not a lot of um, understanding either. And so a lot of families feel isolated and left out. So these were the types of things that sort of, you know, were kind of like the tumbleweed, you know, I was checking in the back of my mind, things that I was picking up from having, you know, therapeutic interact with these parents and knowing um, really what their, their stress was about and what it was for them. And I would see these common patterns from parent to parent. And so when I did this intervention with my, my staff in the center, um, I knew the parents of the kids in my center pretty well. And you know, they had a lot of the same struggles and concerns. So again, my role wasn't to necessarily do these types of interventions with those parents, but that's, that's prompt, what prompted me to write the book because I, I really thought that everybody should have access really to a story that, that someone outside of being a parent really understands and has had experience with so that this resonates with other parents and caregivers to say, look, this is kind of the reality of what this looks like and how you can help or how you can help yourself a little bit more. Yeah, I think that's really important because one thing that I think is interesting about your book is it 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 supplements some of the traditional advice that caregivers might get that might not always be helpful. Um, so I'm curious, could you talk a little bit? You know, what is some of the traditional mm-hmm. advice that caregivers get? Why isn't that always helpful? And and how has your book addressed that, or how do you address that with with your work? Yeah, in fact. That was um, what I was recommending back then. A lot of the traditional <laughs> interventions, like you know, what, what do we tell people today when they're stressed? Can you take a walk? Maybe go to an exercise class. Do you have a friend? Maybe you could just get out of the house for a few hours. You know, the the, the commonality in all of the traditional recommendations, for the most part, there's a time factor to them, and that's what I recognize. You know, these parents just don't have time. I mean, most parents today. <laughs> period will say, I don't have time to do a lot of these things. But this subpopulation of parents in particular, you know, they're dealing with behaviors um, that need constant attention, especially when the kids are little. And I also find that usually one parent is the primary caregiver, because oftentimes one is at work. And so that person, um, sort of knows the lay of the land, so to speak, and the consistent pattern. And so they're the ones who are with the kid um, the most. And really, if there's something out of the ordinary that happens, they're called in anyway by the other parent or siblings or whoever's around. So to tell a parent, you know, who's always kind of got to be right there or on guard, hey, why don't you just take a few hours out? They're like, are you kidding me? And, and honestly, they, they've gotten frustrated. I've heard that feedback that like people are telling their other professionals, right? It's or we're trained to recommend, you know, the traditional interventions to begin their time consuming. And so these energy techniques, especially the one that I did with my staff is a two minute breathing exercise. The reason it's a little bit different from traditional just deep breathing is it's really integrated. So, you know, we're crossing the midline of our body and we're doing some breathing patterns that actually address the left and the right brain and the top and the bottom to help synaptic firing, we think be a little bit more efficient and has a really interesting effect that, you know, if if we're heightened, it sort of brings some calm. And if we're really low and bottomed out, that it helps to restore a little bit. So it really, we think does an effect balance the brain out a little bit and give it a little bit more of a resilience. 
And so this, these couple exercises that I have in the book, um, one is collarbone breathing from Dr. Roger Callahan's work. And it, it's a little bit, people will say, oh, that's long and hard. And I say, if you think it's a little bit hard, then it's probably worth practicing because it is integrated. And that's telling me that there's something that's, that's difficult that your brain isn't, doesn't want to shift in that way. And if you can just practice it a few times, it'll get easier and you're going to really feel the impact. And I actually have that on a YouTube video. I, I modified it just slightly where I, I take a, one different breathing pattern than his original, but I always direct people to that video. And I say, you can follow along with this video. And the other, um, the other thing that I talk about in the book is a little bit more detailed and it's the, Dr. Callahan's idea of reversals. They're called psychological reversals. And what he thought these were were blockages, which we experience with clinicians all the time when someone comes in and there's a blockage, you know, to like a core belief or something that, you know, I want to get better, but I don't know why I just can't change this behavior or it, it's like a looping kind of phenomenon can happen. And I find, and there's a lot of different layers of these, it's too complicated to get into. And I don't know if anybody would really be interested right now, but the, the reason there's two specific ones that I find really come up with caregivers. And there's this resistance to really feel comfortable that if I can just pull away for a few minutes, even let alone that hour that my child will still be safe. And the interesting piece to that is that is a realistic belief oftentimes for this subpopulation. Yeah. And so the body, right, when we talk about the mind-body connection, the body starts to believe this and then reinforces that core belief that if I'm not fill in the blank, my kid won't be safe or there is a realistic safety factor. And then we take this to the next level and we could talk about polyvagal theory, right, and the and the fight and flight. So it's, there's always, we're waiting for a fight. We're always, you know, hyper, hyper focused on what's next. And so for this population, I really see that pattern too, that it, there's, there's this underlying safety mechanism in the caregiver, especially the primary one, that they can't back away, which this factors into them. You know, this is getting complicated, but I talk in the book about the actual skills and the behavioral interventions to work best with the child. And so this is another layer um, that parents really can be skilled in to help prevent a lot of the not so great issues by having a good skill set in the intervention, the behavioral interventions. But that's another layer to this safety issue that I'm the only one that can do this. Or yeah. I know what to do and I have to be the primary intervention person. So again, it's a little bit condensed for the sake of, sake of this podcast, but um, it really does get complicated, but it, it resonates with the subpopulation. And I don't know that we're using that language too much. No, I, I appreciate you sharing that. And um, I imagine too, that that's something that a lot of, even parents who do not have uh, children on the spectrum can relate to that, you know, especially if they are the primary caregiver and they have a, a newborn baby, like, you know, mm -hmm. they're going to be concerned about the child's safety. They might not want, you know, a babysitter to watch him or just to leave him alone. Um, I am curious, how, how do you work with that belief or that fear? I mean, is that, is that even something that you're, that you're do, you, do we even have time to talk about that on this or? Yeah, and this is something where I really encourage parents. I know I just got done saying the time is of the essence, but again, I'm putting the book out there so people can do what they can 
with the book information on their own. But eventually, you know, if the parent can make time for some outpatient therapy, this is what I do in outpatient. Oftentimes when parents come to me and want me to see their kids at outpatient, um, after we have an initial, you know, kind of set up conversation, usually they're the ones who are coming in first and they're quickly ready to identify, yes, I'm burnout, I'm tired, whatever you can do. And I think that I've effectively, just because I have a lot of knowledge of the, the disorder and I have the energy tools that I can make the outpatient sessions very um, efficient and as quick as possible to be able to use some of these tools. So the breathing exercise I mentioned on YouTube is really a foundational exercise. And I usually start people on that pretty readily. And again, that's why I made the videos. So they can you know, do a lot of my work is homework at home, but it's, it's short and doable, right? Of course, nobody's going to do it if it's not doable and it's a laundry list of things to do. But that really is the foundational um, exercise. And what I was taught through the Callahan techniques is to get the readiness piece. Yeah. You know, and then after people were doing that a while, then, you know, they start to be able to tease through what some of their primary issues are. And, you know, if I'm hearing a lot of panic, if I'm hearing a lot of intense behaviors that the kid might have, if I'm hearing a history of unsafe behaviors, that's, that's a big sort of light bulb for me to say, let's explore the safety reversal. And it's funny, this, this, it, it was a specific reversal in the Callahan techniques, but I, I remember watching the Olympics a few years ago and it was a sprinter. I can't remember what country he was from. I want to say Ghana and they got a close up of him and you see him doing this on the track before, before they were running. Uh -huh. And this is actually one of the places that you can intervene with that safety correction. Now, I'm not sure if that's exactly what he was doing. It could have been a different type of correction, but it really can be as short as this paired with an affirmation for that safety. Now, I want to have a full disclaimer here. Again, I do this in successive steps to just say, oh, I think that that's me. Let me try this. <laughs> and can bring some ill effects only because the foundation was not set. And right, and this is the sort of parallel to other therapeutic techniques that, right, you don't want to jump in without laying some groundwork for safety rules and things like that. So to answer your question, that's how I do it. I don't, wouldn't recommend that someone just jump into it now. Sure. However, if they are looking for an intervention, the collarbone breathing is a great place to start. It's very comprehensive. It was one that we used back in the day with the people who presented with a lot of complicated um, issues with the pain, a lot of head trauma. So again, it's difficult. If you find it difficult, it probably needs, it means it would be good for your brain to do it. So that one I would recommend for listeners. And for these breathing techniques, are these, um, do you have them practice them um, and do it when they're feeling anxious and stressed? Um, I mean, how, how does that work? Well, when I introduce them, I tell everybody, don't use these first like a Xanax because, <laughs> and that's fast acting I, for no, those know, of us who I, don't know. I know. Because I, I see the whole psychological component of, you know, when you, the experience of going to an outpatient session, right? If this is your first time and you know this because you're in practice, yeah. you know, people are a little bit apprehensive. They're nervous to begin with. It's a new experience. And then I lay this breathing exercise out the first session and they, they say, wow, I feel kind of relaxed. This is really good. And then the next question is, can I do this again? And so what I usually like to do is prescribe it 
as far as like once or twice a day, but I kind of advise against not using it as the fast acting tool at first, only because <laughs> the thought process sometimes goes, well, I had a really good, I'm driving home, I had a great session with Andy. I wake up the next day and, you know, everything broke loose and, and my anxiety is up to about an eight out of a 10. Let me try to use that. And oh my, my okay. Okay, let me remember. Can I remember? Am I doing it right? Well, wait a minute. I don't know. Is, is, is she didn't, why did I feel different when she was doing it? So that whole like sort of doubt and lack of confidence about using it is really the reason I don't say just go for it as much as possible. <laughs> I, I I agree 100%. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I, as you mentioned, I, I, I am a therapist. I, I do work um, with people who have trauma and anxiety and I'll, I'll teach them these breathing techniques, but I always tell them like, you have to practice doing them. Like you have years of training your mind and your body to be in that fight or fight mode or an anxiety, you, you need to take some time for yourself to train your body and your mind how to relax. Um, so, I mean, I was kind of curious why you asked that, but then I'll get, um, I'll, I'll get clients. They'll, they'll tell me like, Oh, you know, I tried that breathing exercise in the moment and it didn't work. And then I'm like, were you, have you been practicing it on a daily basis? And they're like, uh, no. And I'm just, I mean, I'm kind of like, well, you know, you really need to practice this. And it, it sounds like that's similar to, to your mindset as well. Yeah, I think that that's just general good practice, right? <laughs> in, the, in, a, in a society, you know, I can speak to America because I live here and I, I can't speak to other cultures and countries, but we are in, you know, the fast paced mode all the time and we want a quick fix and we want it all and we have yeah. access to a lot. So I also, when I, big picture, what I, I talk about with all of my clients is that, you know, less is more to start, focus on one thing, you know, and, and even with the energy techniques, I, I, I will say this, they're so enticing that I think once people, you know, experience it once, it's like, what else can I do? I want to do it all. I want to do more. And, you know, they seek out a lot of different um, ways to do energy work and, I am a licensed professional counselor. I'm a licensed behavior specialist also, but there are a lot of people who practice energy work who are not licensed clinical professionals. And so, you know, they, but they say they're doing energy work and that's okay to do. But I sometimes will caution clients about just trying to grab onto all of the things when we need to be consistent, which is a high principle of behavior, ABA, that I talk about high consistency, you know, for a while with one or a few tools to gauge, you know, what's working, you know, and, and progress. And I'm always, I tell my clients, I'm slow and steady wins the race. I'm not going to say, you know, let's, I'm going to give you all the tapping right now and we can do it. You can do it at home. It's going to take a little bit of time, but if you stick with the protocol, you will make progress because I have tools to troubleshoot when we get stuck. And that's the benefit of working with a trained clinician um, you know, who, who knows energy work, but also as a licensed clinical professional too. That's, yeah, that's great. I mean, that's great that you give them that, those tools and you're able to work with them slowly. Um, what sort of, re, what sort of, can you give examples of what sort of results have you seen or what do your clients tell you, like after they've been working with you, what, what sort of differences or changes do they see in their lives? So if I speak to the caregiver population, a lot of the families or the parents, the caregivers that I, that I work with, again, initially did not 
<laughs> think they were seeking me out for their work at all. And once they they started really like one or two sessions, they kind of said, you know what, this is a priority for me and I can make time for this because it was effective. And well, the results that they find is really, I can't emphasize enough, that breathing exercise in itself is really powerful. And just giving them one tool that's again, doable, you know, five minutes a day that you don't have to, you know, turn on a meditation and try to quiet your mind, which is obviously a really advanced tool. But then again, that's the new thing in media, right? Everybody wants to meditate, but it is difficult. Like you said, you need to practice, you know, that gives them some momentum and they're the more, you know, it's reinforcing. So they want to do it more. And then there's um, some trust in that process, you know, and there, let me speak to that too, before I finish the question about what, what their results are is when you're doing energy work, you're really getting in touch with those feelings in your body. And a lot of us who start doing this, who have been in high crisis or high you know, states of anxiety for a long time are not used to doing that. And that can be really scary to even tap into that feeling and or work with your body while it tries to shift and release it because they're all new feelings and that can be anxiety provoking in itself. So that is one of the reasons why I go really slow. Um, but for this subpopulation, you know, they're really just coming back in their bodies in that way, because they've been so, you know, in the external trying to keep all of the balls in the air that they really haven't had time to focus within. And once they start to do that, and once they start to learn to do it, it's a matter of just a few seconds check-in, and then they can start to use the, the breathing exercise, at least on their own again down the road. Some of the more advanced things that I do with caregivers, again, a lot of these latent type of reversals. Um, another reversal I talked about safety, but possible, it's possible to be over any of the stress or let it go. You know, it's sometimes that's a belief too, that's there. So sometimes I take these core beliefs, you know, individualized, of course, based on the person. And then I do work through some, I, I tend to blend thoughtful therapy and EFT together. I take parts of both, which again, I was originally trained in diagnostics EFT, which I, I do not use um, any type of, uh, muscle testing or ideomotor cueing, which I'm just not going to talk about that today, but I just go straight to the point and look at those reversals that Dr. Callahan talked about. And that really is a next huge layer for this subpopulation. And when they start to feel really relaxed, when I start to do these interventions, I always use a rating scale for my clients. And this is kind of what I go by when you're asking about effectiveness. And I use a sub scale subjective units of disturbance, and it's a zero to 10 scale. And so 10 is the worst feeling and zero is completely neutral. And oftentimes what I find with people when I start, especially caregivers, is they can't remember the last time they ever were a zero. Mm. And that's wow. the target. So that's really interesting, you know, as an observation, I can't remember when I was felt completely neutral. I've always been at this sort of, you know, five to seven hovering number level with my stress and anxiety. So that's really what I, what I ask the, the client to give me feedback is that number. And I know they say, okay, Mandy, I know it's hard to put a number on it, but I really am kind of insistent that they, they at least approximate a number that don't have to be perfect. And I see those numbers getting lower and lower. So my goal is of course, is to get as close to zero more often than not than up at the eight to 10 range. And so effectively within a few weeks, and again, this really is contingent on people doing their homework because it is practice and routine and we need to get used to that, that their numbers do slowly come down. Something that I've talked about somewhere else about um, therapy is I think people who haven't 
really gone through therapy or they don't know people or about the therapeutic process, they, they kind of have this stigma still that coming into counseling or therapy is just always about digging yourself out of a stress hole when really good outpatient therapy can be about getting better. So with respect to that number line for me, sometimes when people get down to their, you know, one to zero range, you know, so a lot of, I, I've heard that some therapists will say, okay, we're done here. Great. You met your goals. But I always say, what are the next things that you want to accomplish? Mm-hmm. And so even if that zero is a zero for that, is there anything that's still hovering around a, a five or a six? And then we look at that issue and it might be something new. And that happens too, right? When we get better and heal, we see things differently in our world. And there might be kind of new problems that we're falling out of alignment with, so to speak, and that we have to adjust to in a different way. So those are the types of things that I, I look for next as far as uh, maintenance for the other things. And then really building resilience. And this is really what speaks to these energy techniques and what I think, you know, contributes to this whole biofield is our, our overall resilience on the daily, all the big picture. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm, I, I actually use that number, that same number system too. I'll do it before and after we do that. I'll do a breathing technique with them um, and I'll have them say before and after. Um, and it, I mean, it, it, sometimes it's pretty remarkable. I mean, they'll drop like three or four points. And I, I mean, I always tell them like, if you can just drop one, that's great. Um, and, but then, like you said, it's just a matter of getting them to, to practice it on a, on, a, on a daily basis so they can get better at it. Um, and now I, I apologize if you've already mentioned this, but have you used any of these techniques on children who are on the autism spectrum disorder? Yeah, so full disclosure, we have no research just for this population on the tapping, especially. I will say, if you really look into interventions and research, other than ABA, it's really difficult to sort of group um, quantifier, to, to, to find quantifiers to do research for this population for the kids. So even in general, traditional research, you, you see a lot of parameters being used to try the best to quantify subpopulations. Um, I have a disclosure that, that I talk to parents about that, that look, there, there really is no clinical research for this population. However, the bulk of the research for the tapping for EFT especially is in pain, trauma, anxiety, depression, addictions, eating disorders. So some parents will say, okay, I completely understand that, but let's try it. And so some kids I, I do work with for some of these techniques, but what I find is that due to the way that um, these kids typically think, which is very formulary, it's more about a solution than a process, oftentimes for a lot of things. And when we look at stress levels for them, it sometimes doesn't make sense. Why am I doing this for a problem that just, I don't like the way that this went or it needs to go a different way. And this is, again, the value of ABA and how to look at that type of thinking and really use our traditional solution-based problem-solving kinds of techniques to help see a different path or perspective or theory of mind. These are very cognitive-like approaches, but they seem to do really well with these types of approaches. The ones, um, the, the other piece that's difficult is follow-through and consistency. Because again, if it's not meaningful to do a breathing exercise every day and it's not fixing my problem, why would I invest in this and do it every day? So I, I tend to run up a, a, 
some of these problems kind of come up. Now, if parents say, okay, I'm going to just do this with them if they're young enough, and I'm going to make it part of their routine, then I do see a lot of progress, especially with um, different types of exercises that um, are that, that tax both hemispheres. So left-right type of integration things, which if, if you look at a kid diagnosed, if they're in OT or PT, they're doing those types of things anyways. But we tend to see a lot of homolateral type of movement behavior and the lack of integration with those types of movement, which we can retrain the brain by crossing the midline and doing some things that we might feel are pretty simple. But it's really difficult for a lot of young kids with this population, not every, not every kid. Some kids are really integrated and coordinated, um, but oftentimes they're not. And so I do recommend things that actually we used in the center when I worked there at the, the Cleveland Clinic Center, which was a strict ABA program. And we were doing a lot of sort of left-right things. And I, I remember having um, a conversation saying, that, you know, this kind of borders with what we, we do with energy techniques. And I remember, you know, them saying, this isn't, this isn't sensory-based, this isn't energy. And I said, for, well, for sure it's integration and it helps with attention and focus. And that, that we agreed upon, but nevertheless, the, the exercises per se, anything crossing the midline really goes a long way. And if parents will work with their kids, I would, I would recommend that if they can. But the tapping, quite frankly, is hit or miss. The breathing sometimes is hit or miss. Um, I actually find myself that I'm actually better at creating the formulas to help with the choices with problem solving. And that kind of seems to do the trick more than we would be surprised with a client who is not diagnosed. <laughs> so, so yes and no to answer your question. I do, I do, I try it if parents want me to, if they still want to move forward. Um, but they, I think they would agree the ones that I've worked with, they see the same effects with their kids that I'm talking about today. That's, that's, that's really interesting. Um, and I mean, and we could spend a whole to topic on ABA, um, so I don't want to go too deep into it, but if you're talking about more solution focused, like let's say you're working with a child who has, is on the autism spectrum, say they're really stressed out because um, they can't find a job or they don't have a relationship, you know, a, a normal problem that most people would have, uh, you know, it sounds like if you're working with a, with a caregiver or someone not on the spectrum, you, you may be more inclined to, to do the, the breathing um, and maybe look at some of their core beliefs. But with children who are on the autism spectrum, you would do that, but also be like solution focused with them. And, and like, I mean, is that, did I hear so A lot that? of ABA treatment, let me talk about just a little bit about applied behavior analysis. I know we don't have a lot of time to spend on that, but I think that ABA gets a really bad rap. And, you know, my energy colleagues, sometimes if I say I practice ABA, they say, oh, that's really harsh. And, you know, the ABA therapists are like, what's energy psychology? So definitely I, I like to bring the two together and, you know, they're both extremely valuable, but if you do ABA correctly, right? The number one rule is it should be motivating and it should be reinforcement based. I got it. And so this, you know, even though it, I think sometimes when people see early, like discrete trial programs, which is an ABA modality with kids, they, it looks kind of sterile to them. And I've actually had people comment to me that it looks cold. It looks like we're not using a lot of language. And I talk about this in the book, that that's what their brain does better with for now. That syntax, a lot of what we would might think is lovey-dovey sort of cushy language, kind of um, isn't that meaningful at some point. And so that's why you see trained people 
interacting with the kids at that level, you know, trusting their expertise of why it looks a little bit different. But really good ABA is really looking at an antecedent from what happens before the behavior and what comes after the behavior and what can we modify to change the behavior, right? This is sort of CBT kind of too a little bit. Yeah. So when you're yeah. talking about those kids that have life problems, I'm always going to back up and ask a lot of questions about, you know, is this really more of a pervasive issue? And probably it is as far as anxiety or expectations. And then actually a lot of psychoeducation goes a long way with perspective taking and we call it theory of mind in the autism world about explaining, you know, um, for example, I worked with a young person once and he, um, he really wanted to join a fraternity and he was in college and he was diagnosed. And I said, well, what do you like? What do you think that that would be like? And he said, well, I just see that they're together and they have a lot of friends. When I actually explained to him what that would look like, he was like, yeah, no way. the reality is. It's probably what most kids in high school would say if they really knew what it involved too. Right. Yeah, but really for him, it was the breakdown of, you know, there's structure there. There's yeah. structure. You have service work to do. Some things you have to make the time for when they, you know, Say, okay, this is going to be a priority. And so you have to work over that. That's really what I was sort of bringing to the table. So a lot of psychoeducation, I, I think we shouldn't underestimate what that person doesn't know. And I think that this is true really for, for any outpatient therapist when we are working with somebody, let's ask more questions and figure out really where, if there's a skill deficit before that we can fill in and help with before really the anxiety or the confusion is really evident because of the lack of the information. That's, that's a really, really good point. Um, and, you know, I'm also just curious from a big picture perspective, what are some things that you have, that you have learned about um, people on the autism spectrum that you feel like would be important for other people to know, or just anything that might help reduce some of the stigma or just, you know, things yeah. that the average person might not know that you're like, you know, this is a common misperception that it would be really helpful if other people knew. Yeah, I think one of the most common things for people in the community, because now we are disclosing more, right? And there are more people out there being open with their diagnosis. I have autism, but the one thing that I would say to people that I really think is important is to know that their language um, computes a little bit different. So earlier when I was talking about syntax, Sometimes this, um, we in America kind of tend to be tentative language or politeness or maybes or not sort of a black and white statement to sort of preserve feelings does not sit as well as direct language does with these kids in this population. So we don't have to bark a demand, <laughs> but we can say it as a statement. So for example, if um, let's take maybe like a high school student, right? And they're, they want to engage with, we'll say it's a male and he wants to engage with a female and he might just walk straight up to her because that's what you learn to do and say, I wanna be your boyfriend. Because that's, again, that's the formula. That's what I want. At first I need to approach and then I get my point across. Yeah. And so someone who doesn't understand what that's gonna, what that means, is going to, right, traditional high school girl will probably giggle or probably be embarrassed 
or probably go, um, yeah, I don't know, and smile or walk away. And everything I just said that could possibly happen, I'm sure there's a lot more, but none of those are really direct. They're really, you know, sort of covert social nuances yeah. that yeah. we take for granted and we understand. So I, um, you know, I would recommend some, somebody to say, well, I, I don't know you very well and I'm not, I will be friends with you, but I'm not interested in being your boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Now, if we said that to somebody who was not diagnosed, they might say that's harsh, but that actually is more comfortable in the fact that there's no wiggle room. We don't have to read between the lines. We're not getting a message that we don't understand. And then we get deeper into a situation that makes it worse. There was a, a popular show, and I can't remember what it was called, um, about a young person diagnosed. And it was actually, he was in his therapy session. And um, he was working with his therapist who was female. And her shirt slid down. And she, her, her bra strap showed. And it was purple. And he was in the middle of his therapy. And he said, oh, you have purple lingerie on or something like that. And the, this, the writer for the show showed the therapist just kind of covering it up and just moving on. What I would have said in that situation is I would have said, yes, you noticed that, but in any other situation or circumstance, that would be offensive or embarrassing to a person. So you wouldn't want to say that to somebody else. So clear, 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 explaining, low syntax, and remember that the social cues are hard. You know, if you smile at someone, they could just say, oh, they're friendly. They're my friend. And that's not necessarily the case. And I see this a lot with actually middle school and high school kids where they think people who are teasing them and laughing, they're happy. They like to be around them, which is really them making fun of them. They get misconstrued. So I can't emphasize enough the direct, succinct language goes a long way. And again, the comfort for them is knowing. Yeah, that's really fascinating and, and really helpful to know. I mean, um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. It seems like that'd be there's. It seems like there's such a need for education, police officers, therapists, um, to have a better understanding and awareness to, to communicate with them like that. So thank you for that. The other thing I might recommend too is what, just for people to bring a little bit of mindfulness when they do have an awkward interaction with somebody who may or may not be diagnosed, like an acquaintance or a stranger, to maybe just think, oh, maybe that person, you know, has difficulty with X, Y, or Z. You know, we're living in a world where we're really trying to promote diversity and acceptance. So if we all just take a step back before we react and just think, well, maybe this wasn't meant how I took it, or maybe I'll just walk away or not engage, especially if it's a stranger, right? That's probably the safe thing to do today. But if we can just bring some mindfulness to that to ourselves too, I think that goes a long way rather than to thrust a judgment on a situation and make it worse. Yeah, that's really, that's really helpful. Um, I mean, I, I have seen that there is more greater awareness for, for people who have, who are on the autism spectrum, but there's still so much um, uh, that people don't know. Uh, I mean, everything that you just shared with me, I'm like, okay, I kind of knew that, but I mean, the way you explained it was so much more clear and practical and helpful. So yeah, that's, that's really good to know. Yeah, there's, there's a phrase, if you know one person with autism, you know one person with autism. And that can't be more true, right? Because we're all different. In fact, I like to talk about neurodiversity on, you know, sort of a continuum. I've seen different, like sort of attempted like pie charts in three, three dimensional ways that, you know, it's not just about, you know, neurotypical and 
not neurotypical. I don't love those words. I don't really use them, but just for the sake of this, you know, there's a lot of in between and it's really about executive functioning, how your cognitive processes work. And that's where, you know, if we just think about that, it would make, makes our lives so much easier when we have communication issues with anybody, even if it is a coworker or, you know, somebody that we run into in the community or a stranger, if we just think, oh, maybe they think different. Maybe that wasn't like, they don't like me, or it was something about me. Maybe it's, maybe their perception was different. You know, it would make the world a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. That's a great way to put it. Um, well, I, I know we've covered a, a lot. Um, were there other topics or subjects um, that you were hoping that we would get to tonight? Well, you know, I also do consulting work and I do that for these parents who do have a lot of services in place, um, who uh, might not be in my immediate area, who just need some tweaking or some direction. Oftentimes, if you have, I'll, I'll say this too to the community who isn't real familiar with having a child with ASD, is that there can be an overwhelming amount of resources and, you know, players on the child's team, whether it's clinical, behavioral, and, you know, how to navigate that, how to know um, what are the um, sort of salient points of that, those, you know, resources and which ones may be needing some, some tweaking. And so I do offer that for families who have a lot of intervention, but just either are unsure of the direction um, or, again, for themselves to talk a little bit more about their self-care and how they can use some of these shorter tricks. Um, with their stress levels. And I also work with peak performance too on the other end. Um, and, and this is where the energy techniques come in a lot too, because with high performers, you know, the anxiety, because people usually get to the point of being a high performer because they're thinking ahead, they're planning, they have good strategies, you know, for whatever their, whatever their career or whatever their, their job is or, or vocational task. But, you know, sometimes that can get out from under us. If we're staying aware, you know, we're always on that cusp of being hyper alert, right? We're always, always flirting with a we in fight and flight. And I see that with high performers a lot where they kind of get up there and then it's just like, okay, like, I, I don't know how this happened where like <laughs> everything's kind of coming out from under me. And I had all this managed for years. I could do this. And all of a sudden it's like, I'm either burnt out or, and this is a truly energetic phenomenon, I believe. And in these tools, we think help to deactivate the amygdala and take, take this down a few notches. So I love this population too. I, I work with athletes. Um, I don't think we're given enough attention to athletes. I think the sports psychologists are doing the great jobs that they are, but there's still a big disconnect with coaching and the administrative piece of athletic organizations and um, the athletes themselves. And I think mental health awareness has really been helped through a lot of the Olympians that have been sort of talking about it in the past few years. But just because these people are <clears throat> really high performers, <clears throat> excuse me, and good in their field doesn't mean that they don't have different pressures and different types of anxiety. And so I, I really like to work with that population. I'll be presenting actually with peak performance and athletes in May at the ASAP conference to talk a little bit about this and you know some of those stigmas and how we as outpatient therapists can, can work with them and look into those areas of you know, maybe a high school student who, who comes in for anxiety, but they're really engaged in sports. Well, let's talk about your sports world and what's going on there. I mean, sometimes a lot of that anxiety really overlaps and they don't, they're not even aware of it. So it's a good, good thing for us to be aware of. 
it, it it really is. And I mean, I was, I'm glad that they, you know, people like Michael Phelps, Simone Biles, I mean, other professional athletes who are talking about it. I think, um, you know, unfortunately it's almost like, they're like, oh, they're a professional athlete or they're an Olympic athlete. They've got it all together, but it's like, you know, I mean, mental health can affect um, anyone. Um, I am kind of curious though. So when you say you work with them on their anxiety, so there, these are people who, um, they, they, they've, they've trained themselves how to manage their anxiety and perform under high levels of stress. Um, and now, so what, are, what are you trying to do with that? Are you trying to get them to lower the, to, to perform at the same levels with a lower level of anxiety? So they don't have like chronic stress and depression or, I mean, what, what is your, yeah, well, I think that, that that actually is another misconception. Cause I used to think that about athletes who I'm like, Oh, by the time they get to high school or college, they've got this game licked, right? They, they, they know how to do stress. And really when you talk to individuals, it's, there's not a lot of that being taught. Yeah. So to that point, I would say again, high school, you know, college, it's been relatively easy. The pressure has been easy. And I'm, I'm just making a really global statement just for the sake of this example. So there really can be a lot of work to do with just keeping that flow state. Like we're always talking about flow in athletics, but we don't talk about how to get there. The other pieces that can happen are injury and outside stressors from the sport. Injury, especially when that happens, oftentimes for these younger athletes, high school, college, if this is their first major injury, guess what their coping skill was all of these years? Their sport. Yeah. So yeah. if they're injured and they can't, they don't have their go-to, then a lot of that self-talk comes up and what am I going to do? Am I going to get, when, how, how long do I have to sit? You know? And so the anxiety from just the adjustment to being off or, you know, off playing or engaged or whatever is really um, taxing. Um, I think, was it Kevin Love, who I saw the basketball player was talking um, about some outside stressors he had and right, he's, he's really successful. And of course, people would say, oh, he can handle anything. But when he had these outside, you know, issues in his life going on that were stressing, they were affecting him. You know, it, the level of performance that he is, you know, we as the lay public might not have been able to see it, but there were probably some glitches that him and the coaches, you know, could notice. So again, athletes are people, no matter what level they are, most of us are not going to have professional athletes that we know on TV walking through our doors, but there are a tremendous amount, right? High school age, even middle school. And that's a tough time too, right? For psychosocial development. So there can be a lot there depending on what they're getting from their coaches, how they're coached, how their coach is educated to coach and lead. So there's a ton of information I think that we can glean from, from early athletes and things that we can teach them that, we might have assumed that they have known because they're just good at their sport. That's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, does that, when you talk about peak performance, do you also work with um, people in other, other professions, you know, trying to just be at the top of their, their profession? Yeah. A lot of CEOs I work with, again, the stresses it's from an amygdala standpoint, it's all the same to me. Yeah. It's kind of the same mechanism. You know, it's just, we're always at that threshold. We want to find that sweet spot. And sometimes we're right over there. And we just, we can't get it back. And so that's, again, what these tools help to sort of bring it down so they can use their logical brains that they have the information there. They just can't access it because their emotional mind's too high to be able to, to, you know, fly with what they need to do. 
Yes, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, I, I work with um, veterans who have PTSD and that's exactly what I'm trying to tell them to do is like, we need to call, like quiet your amygdala, get into your frontal lobe so you can start thinking more clearly and deactivate the sympathetic nervous system. And yeah, so I, I get it. Um, but um, yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, and so, so Mandy, where can, this is all, you know, we could spend, this has been great. I, these are all like some of my favorite things to talk about. So thank you for sharing your experience and expertise in this. Um, where can people find more information out about you? Sure, my website is probably the easiest. Everything is right there. Um, it's, it's, it's my name, it's mandyfridger.com. And I have other podcasts on there. I have links to, I have some short YouTube videos, which I think would help um, anybody who's really interested in learning more about autism. There's a series, it's executive functioning. I think there's four videos and they're five minutes. They're really short. I made them short on purpose. Um, but try to, to take a step back and put yourself in someone else's sort of mind and see how um, other people think. Again, this can help just outside of people who are diagnosed with the spectrum too, right? If you just think, oh, other people think differently than me, which sometimes we don't anymore. Um, it can really be of a benefit. And um, yeah, LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn. And most of my work, there's some, I have research studies to support what I'm doing on my website. So there's a lot on there on the book page is on my website also. That's what I was going to ask. Can we get your book on your website also? Yeah, the book is not is in the final editing phases. So hopefully within the year, it will be ready to go. Okay. Um, I'm really pleased about how it's come together. And it, I really think it will have valuable information. It's easy reading. Um, it's for uh, people. You don't have to have technical language and energy therapy. You don't have to have the technical ABA language. It's just pretty easy read. And that's what it was meant to be. So the press page is on there. All the information when it comes out will be on there also. That's great. Um, well, Mandy, thanks again so much for your time tonight and sharing your experiences and expertise. This was uh, really fascinating. So um, thank you so much. Thank you. It was nice to be here. All right.